Amen. Let's bow our heads together. We praise the name of Jesus Christ. We come to you, Father, by your Spirit. We come in the name of your glorious and awesome and majestic and saving and redeeming and reconciling and justifying and sanctifying Son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler over every nation, the one who alone is worthy of praise and honor and glory and power and dominion. We worship Jesus Christ in this place. And Lord, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the privilege of gathering here. Lord, we thank you that we are holding in our hands your living and active word and that you want to speak to us, that you want to be close to us, that you sent your son so that we could relate to you as adopted sons and daughters with all of the privileges and blessings that go along in that family, Lord. We thank you and praise you. May you continue to work in our midst, Lord. May we hear your voice. May we seek your glory. And may we quickly get out of the way so that you can work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we were last week. And uh, we're back in uh, the same chapter. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that as they're coming up and down the aisle right now. We're in a series called Our Pillars, looking at how God builds his church and the things that we are committed to, the non-negotiables. These things will never change. The expression of how they might be changed or the wording might change, but these are things that are absolutely crucial to how Christ has planned to build his church. When you, when you sort of think about a church, you think about a building that looks something uh, like this, but the church is so much more than what you might see on the outside. And when we think about our pillars, we, we, it begins with the foundation. Our foundation is Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done is, is the very foundation of everything we do as a church. And then building up from that foundation, we have four pillars. We looked at preaching last week. This week we're talking about prayer and then witness and worship. These are the things that connect us to the solid foundation. So those are our pillars, and that is what our church uh, is uh, built upon. So, so our whole church is, is founded on the foundation of Jesus and these four pillars. And so we're jumping in right now to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Let me read the passage to you. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What we're going to see from this passage today is that Jesus is the greatest motivation for prayer. That the focus in our lives, as we think about all of these pillars, it's not just that we're supposed to focus on preaching. No, we focus on, on Christ, which motivates us to preach. We don't just focus on prayer. No, Christ is what motivates us to pray. And in Hebrews chapter 4, Christ is described as our high priest. And it comes, it comes right after the discussion of the sword of the Spirit. We have this discussion now of Christ being our 
high priest. And what we're going to see today is that with Christ as our high priest, that motivates us to do two things. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes today. We pray because our high priest encourages us to hold on to what we believe. Our high priest encourages us to hold on to what we believe. And I want to zero in on the last word in verse 14. I want to begin at the end of this verse. It's the word confession. And the reason why I want to start with that word confession is because we normally just have a very narrow understanding of what the word confession means. When you think about confession, you probably think about admitting that you've done something wrong. You think about confessing your sins. If you're a Roman Catholic, you think about going to that little phone booth thing and, and, and having a, 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 a confession with a, with, a, with a priest. Well, here we're, to, we're told about a high priest, but confession is not used to acknowledge wrongdoing. The word confession simply means to state the truth. So if it's true that you've sinned, then you confess your sins. If it's, if it's true that you have done something wrong, then you confess that. But a confession is simply a statement of truth. And so we as a church, if you go to our website or you can probably get it at our welcome desk, we have a doctrinal statement. And some churches, they call their doctrinal statement a confession of faith. It simply means this is what we believe. And so the author of Hebrews is telling the people to hold fast to our confession. And that's... that's that's what our high priest is encouraging us to do. He encourages us to hold on to what we believe. The NIV translates that, that part of the verse in this way. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. That's another way of saying hold fast to our confession. Now, this is really the central mes message of the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews was written to a group of Hebrew People who were both racially and culturally Jewish. And they had converted to Christianity. They were believers in Jesus. But they were feeling this pull. This pull away from Christ. And this pull to go back to their mother culture. And their ways of thinking. And their ways of interacting with God. And there were friends who were trying to draw them back in. And, and societal pressures. And family this pressure to come back to their old ways of thinking. That's why the book of Hebrews is so relevant for us today. I mean, it may not be relevant. There may only be a, a handful of us here today who, have, uh, who, who, who are, are, are Jewish. But there is that pull, isn't there? The, the mother culture, the broader society is trying to lure us away from Christ. We feel pressure from, from our culture. We feel pressure from the media. We feel pressure from our family and our friends. We feel backed into a corner. And the desire to compromise is stronger than ever. That's exactly what those who were reading this letter for the first time 2,000 years ago were going through. And, and because Christ is our high priest, we must hold on to our confession. If there was, a, if there was an 80s-themed mixtape for the book of Hebrews, track one would be, Don't stop believing. Because that is the message that's just, it's, it's on repeat. It's just a time and time again. Don't stop believing. Continue to hold fast. Don't let go of what God has given to you. 
So Christ is described as this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's part of the confession. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we feel pressure, don't we, to, to in our broader um, universalist uh, culture to to not talk about the fact that Christ is unique, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Do you feel that pressure? I felt that pressure in my Uber ride here to church today. My Uber driver is like, you know, you're a Christian and I'm a Sikh, but all that really matters is what we believe in our heart. And I'm sitting there, and I could just smile and nod, because that's what the broader culture believes, right? I could just say, yeah, you know what, yeah, you're right. No, or I could say, well, yeah, but no. Because what we, what we believe in our heart, it, it can't all be true all at once because all the different world religions contradict one another. And so there must be one that is superior to all the others. And I believe that, it very, I tried to be as polite and clear as I, and respectful as I could, I believe that Christianity is unique in that it, its founder isn't just a religious person. Its founder is God himself, the Son of God, who came here to tell us the way to get back to God. But we feel that, we feel that pressure, don't we, just to kind of smile and nod, to quietly miss uh, the opportunity. Next week is about the pillar of, of witness, and that's something that we're committed to do here at Harvest. And listen, we won't be effective witnesses. We won't hold on to what we believe unless we are a praying church. And that's what this passage is all about. Christ is our high priest who enables us to pray so that we can hold on and, and continue to trust uh, and believe in what God has entrusted to us. Now Christ in verse 14 is described as a high priest who passed through the heavens. So in the Old Testament, there were priests. They were all descendants of Levi. But within the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, were set apart as high priests. And that, that language of passing through the heavens is really important because the priests were the only ones who were allowed to pass through in the tabernacle or the temple. These, these buildings of worship were divided into three parts. You had the outer court where, where people could come and worship, but only the priests could pass through into the holy place. And then there was another place behind a veil called the Holy of Holies. And only one time a year, one high priest, one son of Aaron could actually pass through to that part. And the Old Testament temple and tabernacle was a picture of the presence of God. And here we're told that Christ is like a high priest, but he didn't just pass through one room to another in a physical earthly building to enter into the symbolic presence of God. No, he passed into heaven to the very presence of God. He is the Son of God. He came down in order to make a way for us to go and be with God. Christ is the one who did that. Now, it's very, very important for us to understand how serious this is, this, this business of the, of the different rooms in the temple or the tabernacle. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. You heard me correctly. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Okay, and so it's right after Genesis and Exodus. It's, it's the next book, Leviticus chapter 16. This is where the law of God lays out the commands for the festival of Yom Kippur, 
which is, which is what our Jewish neighbors are celebrating this week, this Tuesday, Wednesday, is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. It's the one day in the year, 364 days a year, none of the priests were allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except on the Feast of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. Now, there's no more temple or tabernacle for our Jewish neighbors to, um, uh, to, to worship at, but they still celebrate it as part of their calendar. But Leviticus chapter 16 is where God lays out the commands for how this was supposed to be done. And note the circumstances under which the commands were given. Leviticus 16 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. That's Nadab and Abihu. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 10. They were killed in the presence of God because they weren't worshiping properly. God is a holy God. A sinful human being entering into the presence of a holy God equals death. No questions asked. And so Nadab and Abihu worshipped in a, in, a, in a cavalier, unrespectful way, and they were struck down. So the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come any time into the holy place inside the veil. That's what, that's what we can assume Nadab and Abihu did. Because here's the context. God's saying, they went past that veil. Aaron, here's what you and your sons are supposed to do. You may not go behind the veil any time before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. And so... God tells Moses to tell Aaron to gather together a bull and a ram and two goats and another ram. And then look at verse 11 with me. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So he's supposed to take this animal, this bull. He's supposed to lay his hands on it. And then that animal is going to be killed and going to be burned. And in the laying on of hands, he is saying, what is about to happen to this animal is what I deserve, what should happen to me. This shows the seriousness of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so that animal was killed and burned. And notice how the, the, the priest, shoot, I just lost my page. Leviticus chapter 16. Talk amongst yourselves. Here we go. Leviticus chapter uh, 16, he's supposed to make a sin offering for himself. So the, the first time he goes in through the veil, it's for himself, for his own sin. It says in verse 12, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar. So where that bull is burning, he shall take a censer with a coal and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. And so he goes inside the veil. This is that the, the one time a year. Now look down at verse 15. Then he shall kill, a, kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And so now he had done an offering for himself. Now he's going to do an offering for the people. There's actually two goats. One goat uh, had the sin symbolically placed on, uh, on it, and then it ran off into the wilderness. This other goat, so you have a living goat and a dead goat, which really uh, foreshadows how Christ was going to be a, a savior who, who died and yet, and yet lives. But he is supposed to then, in verse 15, take the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood, again, inside the veil. Verse 16 
Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so one time a year, one son of Aaron was allowed to go past the outer court, past the holy place, into the holy of holies beyond the veil. Now Christ is a high priest. Now Christ is not a son of Aaron, so that doesn't disqualify him from being a high priest because he's the son of God. The role of a priest was to mediate, you know, to represent men before God and to represent God before men. Who better to do that than Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who is the son of God. He is the great high priest. Now, turn back with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at what is said a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 9 here on the screen. For Christ has entered... Not into holy places made with hands, not into a temple or a tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, notice this, on our behalf. So Christ has passed through, and he didn't need to make an offering for his own sin first. No, he was sinless, as we'll talk about in a moment. But he has gone not into the symbolic presence of God in a building. He has gone, that, that's a copy of the true things. He has gone to the true presence of God. And he is there on our behalf. So to, to summarize it all, look back at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Don't stop believing. Hold fast because what we believe, loved ones, is so amazing. No other religion has anything. Other religions have priests, have priests who go into temples, but no religion has the Son of God coming down to earth and entering into heaven to make a way for us to go to heaven. Every other religion says, well, try hard and hope you'll get there. Christianity has the Son of God hold fast to what we believe, that he has come down to us to make a way for us to go and be with God. Verse 15 unpacks a little bit more. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without Sin. He's without sin. He didn't need to make an offering for his own sin ahead of time before he went into the veil for everyone else. No, he was without sin. And notice what it says. It says that it's a double negative, uh, bad English but very powerful Greek. We do not have a high priest who is unable. Your your English teacher, if you were to write a sentence like that, your English teacher would, would circle it with red marker. But it's making a point. When you say, I ain't going back there no more, right? (laughs) I ain't going back there no more. So that means that you are going to go back there more? It's a double negative, but it means you're really mad, doesn't it? You use double negatives when you're you're just really laying it down right now. And that's what the author of Hebrews says. We don't have a, we don't have a, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's really laying it down right now. And he wants us to to understand. He wants to motivate the people to pray, to come before the throne of God. Because Jesus is the greatest motivation for prayer. 
It says that Christ was tempted in every respect as we are. Do you see that? It was tempted in every respect as we are. Now, you might be reading that and thinking, okay, well, in AD 60 or whenever, when the book of Hebrews was written, I mean, that, that would probably make sense. But can we read this now? Is this something that the Bible said but no longer says, like it doesn't really apply to us? I mean, Jesus, like, never experienced road rage. Jesus never got frustrated being on the phone for three hours with customer service from the cable company. He, there, I mean, there are certain limitations. I mean, even Je- Jesus never experienced the unique temptations that come with, with being married or parenting or being elderly. He, he just didn't live through those seasons of life, did he? And so can we really say that Jesus was tempted in every way? I mean, is, is, is this a bit of a little bit of you know, scriptural over-exaggeration to, to make a point? Is he being hyperbolic here? What is really happening? Well, let's, let's, let's drill down a little bit. When we normally think about being tempted or sinning, we think about things, you know, sort of in broad categories. And um, so things, sexual sin, anger, boasting, substance abuse, lying, stealing, pornography, arrogance, vanity, bitterness, laziness, gossip. Those are just some of the things that we feel tempted to do. Some of the sins uh, that we commit and we have to confess before the Lord. Now, some of those things Jesus would have been tempted with straight out. But the other things he wouldn't be tempted with because of the, the time in which he, he lived. But listen, loved ones, when we really think about why we do the things we do, Lying behind every sin, there's only a few things that actually motivate us to sin. And so lying behind each, you can even put hundreds of things in that top box. But ultimately, it's really just about four things. Why, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we, why do we do things in our lives that promote so much dysfunction? It's because we're seeking after power, possessions, people, and pleasure. Why do we lie? Not for pleasure. That makes you a sociopath. We, we lie because of people. What motivates us to lie is we're afraid to let people down. We're, 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 we want to be accepted by people, so we exaggerate a story to, to make people think we're cool. We, we lie for the sake of it's people that motivates us to Lie. Why do we struggle with, with uh, substance abuse? Well, the pleasure is, is, is pretty clear. We, we do it to, to feel good, but it might, be because of, it might be because of people as well. There might be pressure uh, from other peers who are steering you in a, in a particular direction. No one steals because it feels good. People steal because they want the possession. And why do they want the possession? Because they want people to notice them and they feel like they have power over people if they have these things. You see, it all comes down to these four categories. And really, if you were to drill down even further, if you get right down to it, at the end of the day, every human being is looking for two things. Satisfaction and security. At the end of the day, we, ju- we, we, just, we have longings that we want to be satisfied. And that's why we sin. That's why we feel tempted. And we want so badly to feel safe. We long for security. So you could follow whatever you're struggling with right now. 
Whatever your largest temptation is in your life, you can follow it right down and end up at the bottom of it all is satisfaction and security. Now let's think about Jesus. So there's uh, one particular moment in the Gospels which retell the life of of Jesus uh, where Jesus is experiencing direct temptation from Satan. Do you remember that? Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. And so help me out. Help me out. What was one of the things that Satan told Jesus to do when he was tempting him? Bread into into stone? Okay, so taking taking the stone and turning it into bread. Where does that fit into satisfaction. Jesus had, he hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was hungry. And he was longing to be satisfied. Okay, so what was one of the other ones? Help me out. Yeah, jumping off a building. Jumping off a, jump, jump off the top of the tower. What, what's that? Security. Satan quotes the Bible. Hey, Won't the angels catch you? Won't he make sure that not one of your feet will strike a stone? How can you really trust God? How do you know you're going to be safe? And then what was was the last one? He took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and its riches. That's satisfaction and security, isn't it? I mean, you can buy some nice things if you have all the the wealth, and then you have all the security, knowing that you're in charge of it all. That's That's a pretty secure position. You see, Christ was tempted in every respect. And that was just, I mean, one moment in time when he was tempted in the wilderness. Forget the rest of his life. You see, we're told time and time again that Christ was tempted in every way, that he was sinless, that he passed every single test. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. And here, here's something that we need to understand. There's a, even though Christ was tempted, he never sinned. There is a huge difference between being tempted and sinning. Some of us struggle with things that are shameful and hard to even admit that you feel tempted in those areas. But you need to understand that being tempted in a particular way is not sin. Christ was tempted in all kinds of ways. There's a huge difference between feeling a draw towards something, but, but between feeling tempted or tested and sinning. And so we need to understand that. We need to, we need to be be free in sharing with our brothers and sisters in a, in a candid and careful way the things that we are struggling with. Christ was tempted in every respect and yet without sin. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but Christ, what, he, was, he was God in the flesh, and so does the temptation even really count? I mean, didn't he sort of have this default, like, no sin allowed, you know, switch set on him? And And can he truly sympathize with us? I mean, wouldn't it be better if our Savior had maybe sinned a couple of times just to know what it was like, to know how hard it is to experience temptation? Well, I love love what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. He says, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. 
A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. We give in to temptation so easily, we don't, we don't know how hard temptation can actually be. We give in after five minutes, let alone an hour. Christ, 33 years of sinless perfection, that's a lot of five minutes. That's a lot of hours of feeling that temptation. You know, we, we so often are, tend towards pride and self-pity, don't we? You know, things go well, we, we get proud, we, we boast, we're arrogant, and things go bad, we start to feel sorry for ourselves, we want other people to feel bad for us. Do you think anyone had more reason to feel pride than Jesus? Smarter than everyone. Created everyone. Perpetually tempted to be filled with pride. Do you ever think anyone felt more tempted to self-pity? No one listened to him. Everyone was always accusing him of doing things and, and being completely opposite to what he came there to be. And yet that temptation, the temptation toward pride, the temptation toward self-pity, Christ withstood all of those and he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then verse 16 begins with the phrase, let us. Just like 14 had that phrase, let us hold fast to our confession, don't stop believing. Now we have a second let us. This is the second command. Because we know who Jesus is as our high priest, we should do this. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Here's the second thing. Knowing Jesus as our high priest enables us to draw near to God with boldness. It enables us to draw near to God with boldness. Now anyone familiar with the Old Testament would, would, would understand and, and get how shocking what verse 16 says. It says, let us draw near. The invitation is given for the people to draw near into the presence of God. I mean, even Moses didn't get that kind of invitation. At the burning bush, before there was a temple or a tabernacle, it says when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Do not come near. That's the banner written over the Old Testament. But because of Christ dying on the cross for us, the New Testament banner says, draw near. And draw near with confidence, draw near with courage, draw near with boldness. Come boldly. And this is why, because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Some of you know what it's like to be a new Canadian. And some of you are here today because another family member came to Canada before you did. They passed through. 
and they, are, and they came to Canada before you did, and they sponsored you to be able to come here, didn't they? Or maybe you're doing that for a family member right now. You're talking with immigration. You've got a lawyer happening. You've got everything sorted out with customs. You, it's, you are making sure that they can come. And so they can, they can come with their, with their document of landing and come before the customs officials and come before immigration with confidence. Why? Because someone has gone ahead of them. And someone is supporting them saying, come, it's okay. You're not going to be deported or, or sent home. You have, and, and so Christ has gone to the presence of God on our behalf. And he has sponsored us so that we can become citizens of heaven. And so that even right here, right now, we can enter into the presence of God, not with fear, but with courage and with boldness. And maybe you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And when you think about what happens after this life, you don't know. And even when you think about meaning while you live this life, you don't know. Well, it's my, it's my pleasure to explain to you if it is for the first time. This is how to be sure about where you go after this life. This is how you can be sure about meaning in this life. You were created to be in the presence of God. You were made by God. And you were created to delight in Him. You were made to, to be comfortable before His throne. And maybe you've spent your whole life running away from His throne. And He's calling you today to turn towards Him. And you need to know that Christ has made a way. And we can't just walk up to him like Nadab and Abihu. We need to understand that God is a holy God and we are sinful people. But Christ has made a way. Because all of us, just like the animals killed at the tabernacle and the temple, the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to die because of our sin. That's why Christians make such a big deal about a dead guy on a cross. Because when, a, when, when someone else looks at the cross, they think, you know, Jesus, he's a you know, religious philosopher or something, a misunderstood martyr, that's really just too bad that he died. No, but the Christian looks at the cross and says, that should be me. He's my substitute. He's standing in my place. And he died and he rose again and he ascended to heaven. He passed through the heavens. He's in the presence of God now. Inviting me to come boldly before the throne. And you can come before the throne today. It's real simple. Just admitting that you're a sinner. Acknowledging what you deserve. Speaking the truth. Making a confession. And then believing that Christ died for you as your substitute. And then committing to following him as Lord. You can make that decision today. You can talk to me after the service. You can talk to the person uh, that brought you uh, here uh, today. And you might be saying, well, that's, Ted, that's fine and good, but listen, you, you, don't, you don't really know. You don't know the kinds of things that I've, that I've done. Well, listen, I, I may not have done the kinds of things you've done. I may not even know the kinds of things you, you've done. It doesn't really matter to me because I know at the end of the day, whatever you did, you did it because you wanted satisfaction and you wanted security. And I know I have that in common with you. And I know I'm just as horrible as a sinner as anyone who feels like the worst sinner in this room. I feel like the worst sinner in this room. We all should. But Christ has made a way for us to come boldly 
into the presence of God. And notice what, notice what the throne is called. It's called the throne of grace. We're all going to be standing before the throne one day. You can either stand before the, the throne of grace right now, or you can stand before the throne of judgment in the future. Grace, which, which means receiving what you don't deserve, is offered to all of us right now. It's offered through the cross of Jesus Christ. One day judgment is going to come. If you're planning on waiting until, the, to, until you're standing before the throne of judgment, that will not end well. But Christ has, has invited us to come before the throne of grace. And then it says to receive mercy and to find grace to help in a time of need. If you are in need of mercy, if you are in need of grace, now is the time. And I know for the last couple of minutes I've been talking to someone, you know, who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. But I, I, I don't want those who are believers to sort of miss what I'm saying here. Because remember, the message of this book is don't stop believing. You can't stop believing until you had already started believing. And so the people who are being told that they need mercy and grace, the people who are being told that they're in a time of need are the Christians. That they are being told, you know, don't think that you just needed mercy and grace when you first decided to become a Christian and now you've sort of cleaned your life up and everything's fine. No, life is a mess. And we are in continual need of mercy and grace. Our, our need for grace is great, but God's ability to give it is greater. And so he has promised to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And maybe you need to spend some time just thinking through, just going back to this chart. Maybe, maybe you've been drifting. And maybe you haven't been living completely for God. And maybe, is it, maybe today is a day for you to return to your first love and remind yourself that there's only one place where you can find true satisfaction. And there's only one place where you can find security. And that's before the throne of grace. And maybe you need to come before that throne today and confess your sin and acknowledge how far you've drifted and ask God to send his mercy and his grace to draw you back to him. I want to ask you to, to bow your heads right now. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer as we get ready to uh, sing this final song together. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to be a people who freely acknowledge our weakness and our need for you. We want to be a people who humble ourselves before a holy God. We also want to be a people who are filled with faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. And we want to be a people who come before your throne of grace, who enter into your presence. Forgive us, God, for wandering. Forgive us for drifting. Forgive us for running flat out away from you. God, we want to come back. 
We want to be filled with awe and wonder that the, the God of the universe, the one who made all of this, who was holy and pure and majestic and glorious, actually invites us into his presence, the place where angels would fear to tread. All because we have a high priest who has passed through for us, who is standing at your right hand, who is interceding for us. So God, draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.